0: Hey guys, welcome to All About The Game with Sathar. Today we have a potential football manager from Pune, Sharva Apte. He's a certified English FA Level 1 coach and has done his master's in sports management. Today he's going to provide us with a masterclass on the basics of football tactics. What tactics managers use, how they set up their teams based on the situation and more. So let's hear him out. Hey how's it going? Going
1: really well, thanks. Thanks for asking.
0: Uh, Great. And uh, what have you been up to over the lockdown?
1: Well, I mean, working on my website, which is now up. And so basically writing a lot and Mm -hmm. creating football content that hopefully my audiences will find engaging and interesting.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. When did you get started? I mean, uh, you've been playing football since you were a kid.
1: Uh yeah, pretty much since my early school days. Mm -hmm. I've been interested and I've been playing football for a while now. I never had the talent to really make it professionally or even big. But have that hasn't let my interest in the game fade away. I mean, I think it has kind of made me more interested in what goes on behind the scenes and how stuff works and in football and how tactics work and stuff like that.
0: Amazing. Amazing. So uh I think you had uh, done a course, right, on um, football, basically, a few years back. About uh,
1: yeah, so about... I did a master's in sports management. Right. Uh, uh, so it's sports management and business of football, where I learned about the insides of the football industry and what goes on behind the scenes and the finances and the marketing and mm-hmm. everything related to the football industry and the sports industry in general. So that was a fun experience for me. And I got to learn a lot. So
0: great where, where do you do that from
1: I did from the University of London Awesome and I worked as I mean I interned at a rugby club while I was there so that mm-hmm. was additional valuable experience that I got
0: Wonderful so how was your experience there like um, in terms of football and everything
1: I mean it's it's what cricket is to India isn't it it's really a cultural thing you can't really separate football and England away right. from each other so right. it's really integral to them and the people over there and it's it's amazing when you go to a match day or when you when you go to mm. a stadium for a match day it's the experience that you have it's something that i mean you it's really thrilling and it's really exciting
0: definitely definitely so um today we want to talk to you about football tactics i'm yeah. sure you'll be able to share a lot with the listeners so yeah. We, I mean, as, uh, you know, just football fans in general, we don't, uh, you know, many of us don't really uh, know in detail what exactly, how the tactics take place and uh, stuff like that. So, why don't you first tell us the the different types of football tactics in general?
1: Well, I mean, okay, it has changed quite a lot since, even since I started watching football, which was about in the early 2000s, but it has right. changed so much over the years, over the history of football. But mm-hmm. currently, if you look at it, there's a few ways to go about it and it kind of changes regionally or geographically. Right. If you will. So if you focus on Europe, if we go to, let's say, Italy, mm-hmm. and there's a strong focus on defensive values and defensive organization when, right. you, when teams play. And when you go to Germany, it's a rapid, fast counter-attacking football. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you go to England, which is now changing its tactical approach, but it used to be very, very reliant on physical prowess and dominance on the field. Right. But it's also really changing. I think the game is becoming so much faster nowadays, has mm-hmm. become so much faster, that I think everyone has to constantly evolve. So right. there are a few ways to go about it. But if I had to put it broadly, I think... Uh, that's how I would put it it really differs regionally and according to the coaches or the managers we Mm -hmm. are playing what he has in mind
0: Mm -hmm. so uh, what about earlier was the culture the same in uh, different leagues like uh, did uh, Italian football always focus on uh, you know defensive strategies and uh, stuff like that or has there been a shift now
1: well I mean Italian football I so since from whatever I can remember uh, growing up or even watching it, since I have been, it's always been focused on defensively. But from what I read and what I've read so, so far, I have all I always I always tend to think that Italians Italian football in general is more focused on defensive organization and protecting leads or not letting someone in rather right. than going all out and attacking and scoring goals. Right. Having said that, it's I mean, there was a time during the 90s where Italy had the biggest players mm-hmm. in the league, from the Ronaldos and the Baggios to, you know, all right. kinds of uh, star forwards and attackers in the league. And even now, it's, it is perceived to be a heavily defensively-minded league or, you know, right. defensively kind of league. Right. But it's not that low when it comes to goal-scoring ratios across leagues. So, it's somewhere in the middle. So, Germany is high up there. Then it's right. England, but then Italy falls somewhere in the middle.
0: Right. So, um, so let's see. So, you know, a team gets a goal and then they just um, stay put. They don't uh, go for the second or third, but, uh, and uh, that's, that's what basically how they win, right? They don't uh, try and finish off the opponents.
1: Yeah, but I mean, given Italy's. I mean, even the Italian national teams' uh, Mm -hmm. reliance and ability to defend well, and even the club teams defending well, they kind of do... I mean, shutting up shop is kind of the way that you finish off teams. So there's really... When we think of finishing off a team, we always think in terms of, you know, scoring four or five and having no chance for the opposition to come back. But scoring one or scoring two and then keeping a clean sheet Mm -hmm. is also a way of finishing teams off. Because you see... It's not just about how many you can score. It's also about how well you can organize at the back. And I think Italians have it down to such a fine art, have mm-hmm. made it, converted it into such a fine art that once they are a goal or two up and they they can almost every time manage to not allow the opposition to get back into the game. So for yeah, example, big teams in Italy, let's say the Juventus Inter, Juventuses or the Inter Milan,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, have have always had such a strong defensive wall let's say that right. they almost always know when they need to you know protect the lead and they can always make sure that they can
0: right 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 so um uh, talk to us a bit about uh, you know the craze that was in the you know the last few years tiki taka football <laughs>
1: uh well, it's interesting you mention it because uh, there is this uh pep guardiola used to hate the term apparently or uh-huh. at least people people say people around him say that he hates the term because okay. tiki taka actually just means passing for the sake of passing so mm-hmm. it's just stale possession futile okay. but that's not what pep implemented and that's not what spain implemented i mean what they what they created from 2000 8 to 2012-15 right. is outstanding what they did with the ball so mm-hmm. his his philosophy is he keeps saying this and no one really pays attention to it but i think his philosophy he says is also highly defense oriented and people say oh come on what are you talking about because yes. but if you
0: yes. sorry it's it's really surprising. I mean,
1: yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because once you look at his teams and once you look at the stats, it's always so many goals, right? Right. But if you look at the other section of the league table and the column where you see goals conceded, mm-hmm. his teams have always conceded one of the least goals in whatever league he's been managing in, right? Right. The Bayern Munichs and Barcelona's or Man Citys, they've always been one of the teams, they've always been teams that concede one of the least amount of goals.
0: Right.
1: And it's a lot to do with positional play. Because mm-hmm. the way he organizes his team and defenses is especially with ball-playing, solid defenders. So right. be it from Barcelona, Gerard Piquet to mm-hmm. Bayern Munich. Uh, you know, Philippe Lam was then right. was a defender, but then moved into a pivot role, a holding right. midfielder role. And then he had the Alaba's, and at Man City now he has Aymeric Laporta, right? right. And he really. We, we, we often talk about building team building teams around a player. And I think it's not just around a player, but it's multiple players through the spine mm. of the team. And I think the centre-back is one of the most important things for a Pep Guardiola team, or for a team that plays possession-based football. Because in possession-based football, one of the most important aspects is playing out, being able to play out from the back. Because right. you can't, you know, hoof it up and play long balls and then hope that the ball comes back to you. It's organised build-up.
0: Right.
1: And... Tiki Taka, even though I mean, as you said, Tiki Taka is the famously used term. So it is right that they keep a lot of the ball, but there's a very uh, logical and pragmatic way to go about it, and it's not just aimless passing. But yeah, what they achieved with the, with positional play and possession-based play was outstanding. I mean, Barcelona more so than Spain. I mean, Spain won Euros and then the World Cup and then the Euros again. But Barcelona, what they achieved during that four-year period was outstanding. And they could easily transition to the Spanish national team because almost the entire national team is made up of Barcelona players and Real Madrid players. And if you have six or seven Barcelona players, then it's going to be easier for the national team manager who was Aragonese and then Del Bosque to implement the same style of play. Right,
0: right, right. And um, so, yeah, tiki-taka is also, I mean, you need to have a lot of, Technical ability, right? Yeah. uh, When it comes to tiki taka, you you should also, I mean, there's a considerable amount of dribbling as well.
1: Right. That is true. I mean, you need to have really, really incredible amounts of talent, perseverance, effort, all of it combined together to play in a style that focuses so much on the retention of the ball and keeping it moving constantly. You know, you can't have a moment where you are just lose on the ball or lethargic in your, uh, lethargic in your play. Right. So it does take a lot of ability, but I think it also takes a certain, uh, I mean, ba- the Barcelona team, for example, from 2008, a lot of them were La Masia graduates, right? A lot mm-hmm. of them from Pk's and Puyols to Xavis and Iesta. So they have this uh, academic system. They have this uh, drilled into them. Since, the very, uh, since a very young age, that you have to be able to analyze where everyone is. You have right. to be able to know when to pass, when to, make, when to make someone run, when to find spaces, when to dribble. So you have to be at a level, technically, where you can fit into the teams. When you're brought into Barcelona, or when you're brought into when the, uh, now the Man Cities, mm-hmm. right? you need to be able to transition, if not instantly, at least gradually and like in a season. Right. So you do need to have a certain amount of skill. And I don't think everyone can cope up to the level of effort that needs to be put in at a Man City or a Barcelona or even a Liverpool now.
0: Of course. Of course. Um so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, groundwork that's uh, that's put in place, right? In the youth academies of there's like almost all the top uh, clubs have their youth academies, and the culture yeah. and everything is set from there, right?
1: Yeah, so that's a big part of it. I mean, if you, if I mean, academies produce talent that has this value system inbuilt, right? Because if you go, if you look at La Masia, the amount of the number of players that they've produced, is in, and that have played at Barcelona and then across Europe is incredible, and right. that that system is kind of you know built in since a since a young age. If you grow up with a value system that and then and when that value system or that playing system does give you results, then it's only going to build your belief. So. And it's the same with Ajax. Ajax have had so much success with their academy. Right. And I think it's something to something to really think about and invest. I mean, for the big big clubs, at least. And a lot of big clubs do it. But I think the reliance on academies is kind of waning because the big clubs have now started spending and attracting the best talents and then buying them off other feeder clubs or other clubs. Right. And academies still produce players, but not... Not at the same level that they used to or not like uh, not the kind of player that they used to earlier on. Right. But you're right. It does have a lot to do with academies and how they have their style of play built in right. and how they have that value system in the end.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay. Um, what are your thoughts on counter-attacking football? Do you like this strategy personally?
1: Um, yeah, I mean Look, I, I honestly like any strategy that makes teams win because mm-hmm. that is something that works, right? You right. can't you can't say that uh, because Liverpool don't play Tiki Taka, they're a, they're not really right. a great football team. They're an exceptional football team. There's right. no denying that, and mm-hmm. they play this fast. Uh, ca- it's not really even counter attack anymore. It's like constant pressing. What mm-hmm. Klopp called gegenpressing, right. which is. But yeah, the the German national team or Borussia Dortmund or a lot of the German mid-table teams, Leipzig, Mm. a lot of them have this rapid, fast-movement counter attacking football. And even Mm. Manchester United had that until... uh, that yielded results until very recently. Mm. And it's an amazing style of play because what it does is it utilizes two aspects that are very important to the game. One is pace. And however much people like discounting pace, because it is not seen as, uh, you know, developed talent and something right. that's raw, it right. is very important. Yes. So pace and quick transitions and quick movements and quick passing is mm-hmm. of immense importance in the game of football. Right. And to answer your question. And kind of to link this back to the previous question about Ticketaka, one of the right. main ways to break down a possession-based game is, guess what, counter-attacking football.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, uh, true. So, yeah, so when you mentioned these, uh, you know, strategies and tactics, so I think you did uh, talk about it earlier, like, the Spanish players, or uh, I mean, who were playing for, uh, you know, Madrid and Barça, they mm-hmm. all, you know, were able to easily transition to the national team. Exactly. So Yeah. So what about, you know, their clubs that, you know, don't, you know, they follow certain tactics. And then when they have to, when the players have to, uh, you know, call up for international duty, they have mm-hmm. to, you know, completely change their style of play. How do they go about it? Like, is it really difficult for them?
1: Right. That's an interesting question because...
0: Hey guys, this podcast is powered by Flow. Flow is a revolutionary app that helps athletes meditate and visualize their game to improve their technique and results. Visualization has been the key to hundreds of successful champions like Michael Phelps, Roger Federer and Kobe Bryant. The app will be available soon on the Apple App Store as well as the Google Play Store. Further details are available on the show notes. Cheers.
1: I think it used to be the case where your club used to play com a, had a completely different uh, tactical approach, your your club coach, and right. then you, move, you moved away, you went on international duty and it was a completely different system. But I think what's what's been recently happening is international team uh, managers and coaches have realized that they need to incorporate uh, facets of club uh, philosophy and facets of the tactical approaches that clubs use for their players into their game into their game plans. So, for right. example, when Germany uh, plays um, with the national team, I mean when Joachim Low makes his national team play for him, he does use counter attacking football a lot, right? because that's what uh, that's what is prevalent through the German league system a lot Mm -hmm. of clubs use rapid transitions and quick movement and quick one twos and exchanges and then bombard down the flanks and Germany tend to use that because guess what the players are comfortable with it and it yields results so why not implement it into your national system Right, and it really works so as you said with the ticket it worked because well you had a lot of Barcelona players but if you look at it, you also had a lot of Real Madrid players who were used to Jose Mourinho's counter-attacking football, back then, right. or Pellegrini's brand of football. Right. But if you have six or seven players, but they're still high-caliber players, you know the Xabi Alonso's of the team, mm-hmm. uh, or the Sergio Ramos's of the team.
0: Right. They're still
1: high-caliber players. So to incorporate that possession-based style of football is kind of difficult when you're a national team manager because you have your own identity and you want to build your own system and style of play. But it becomes much easier if you want to gain results quickly, right? If you want to win quickly, I think it has to be the manager's process change instead of the players changing their process.
0: Definitely, definitely. And um, yeah, so just to follow up to that, how do they handle it? I mean, you know, Barca, Madrid and, um, you know, in... The EPL, there's, I mean, right now we can see a lot more uh, support. Like, you know, we even see uh, players from the rival teams commenting on, uh, you know, the rival players' Instagrams because they're part of the same um, country, right? But Mm -hmm. earlier there used to be a lot of animosity, you know, between the players. How did they, how did they, how did the managers handle that?
1: The golden generation of England, I assume you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, I think uh, this generation is just a better... Uh, there's better cohesiveness in the team, in the national team, especially for England or right. even... Because... And Gareth Southgate is playing a brand of football that they're all used to. Or see the this shift from physical long ball football in England to a uh, possession-based game or at least... Uh, trying to retain the ball kind of game is very evident, right? A lot of teams do try to build up, build out from, I mean, build up, uh, sorry, play out from the back. And mm-hmm. they do try to keep ball, keep the ball as much as they can. So yeah. Garrett Southgate has kind of incorporated that right into the team. And I think uh, as you, I mean, the question was about how players get along. I think it's just very personal. I mean, I can't comment right. on that sitting here, but I assume that it's, it becomes really easier if you kind of if you're kind of used to the football that you play and it's being played at the national level as well. Mm-hmm. Right? So and if uh, there is competitiveness, but it's uh, good competitiveness between the players, then it's ideal, right? Because that's okay. what you want. Right. So between let's say a Trent uh, Alexander-Arnold or uh, Aaron Van Bissaka, that yeah. is good competition. That's healthy competition. That's what right. you want. And both of them, I would say, are equally capable of uh, playing either side of football.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. So, I think it's really personal how you build team cohesiveness and camaraderie. But I think Gareth Southgate has a great bunch of players right now.
0: Sure. Sure. And, um, yeah, uh, do you feel that, there, ha- you know, there has been a lot more international fixtures, you know, the past few years as compared to earlier? That uh, uh, has it. uh, You know, I feel there has been a lot more international fixtures in between the leagues. So, is that so? Have they done anything of that sort?
1: Well, they've changed. uh, They've changed the um, concept of it. So, these used to be international breaks and uh, meaningless friendlies. But now, with the Europa Nations League and all those things, it's kind of a points-based system, right? Yeah. So the international break isn't really a break, you're playing competitive football once again. Mm-hmm. So it has added more value to it, which I think was long overdue, and they finally implemented it. Because right. that's what makes your players uh, perform better, if right. there's a competitive element to it. Because yeah. if it's just French, then guess what, they're going to treat it as a two-week break. Right, uh, right, right, right. So, I mean, there's not necessarily a great increase in fixtures. Mm-hmm. There is probably an increase in the number of games they play, but it's not drastic. But there is an there is the change of you know perception to it because it's now competitive and it's points.
0: Definitely, I remember last year, you know, following the Nations League, and I was like, when was the Nations? League? I mean, of course, it was a new concept, but all the players were taking it really seriously. seriously. And,
1: exactly, uh, yeah.
0: and then even the fans started taking it seriously. Like, you <laughs> know, probably at the start, they were like, what's the Nations League? It's just uh, you know sponsored thing but then right. later on i mean as things got serious so even the fans got you know really involved and that's great
1: yeah that's that's actually really that was a really good idea to have a points-based league in during the for the international fixtures because apart from the world cups and the euros and you know uh, copa americas mm-hmm. and the funds, you have nothing of real value or significance in international football right Right. And those come only, I mean, once every two years. So you can't just suddenly transition into a competitive mode. So it's also easier for the players to keep up their levels sure. if they're playing internationally and it's competitive. And, you know, so it mm-hmm. kind of helps your helps you in terms of keeping your game up and performing all the, way, all the time. Right.
0: right. All right. So uh, let's, um, oh, you, when you mentioned the golden era, I have no clue how they, how England didn't win a World Cup, man, with those players. Jesus Christ, man.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't remember who it was, but someone, one of one of the players from the golden generations recently mentioned mm-hmm. that yes, England had a golden generation, but it's as if people say it's as if people assume that it was only England who had a golden generation. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the Brazilian team from 2002s and 2004s, oh, it was unbelievable, right? Un- right. right? Ronaldo's news yeah. and Cafu. every name yeah. on the
0: pitch. Yeah. Cafu, yeah.
1: Kaka, every name on the pitch was a star. Yeah. And if you compare those two sides, I think you would still say, "Oh man, the Brazilian team is way, way better." Right? right? Yeah. England had the goal generation, and there is also the problem of you know where you play. Paul Scotts.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: that was <laughs> everyone keeps mentioning it, and it was a huge problem because because everyone had this. Even the coaches had wanted to play Gerard, Lampard, and Scholes in the same team. Because mm-hmm. it's so much talent that you can't just exclude one.
0: You right.
1: Right? Have to have all of them inside in the team. And Gerard and Lampard played in the center. And guess where Paul Scholes had to play? He had to play on the left sometimes. So oh. it was a it was with Beckham on the right. And it was a real I mean, even with that, they could have still made it and played should have played much better than they did, but I think all the other teams were also really good when we, but we failed to recollect that when we mentioned the Golden Generation, for example. Right.
0: True. So, uh, okay, let's get back to the tactical uh, part of the discussion. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to bring this up with you. You know, during the season, uh, let's say managers are working towards a certain strategy or tactics, And then suddenly, you know, the players start underperforming, start getting injured. Yeah.
1: How
0: does, you know, how do the managers adapt to those situations? Especially also when, you know, they're building a team around, let's Mm say, uh, if you're trying to build a team around Pogba and then uh, Pogba's injured, then, every you know, all his plans go for a toss. So how do you, you know, adapt to that?
1: Okay. So I think uh, from what I know or what I've read or what I think mm-hmm. is managers or coaches don't, we have this perception of one star player and teams being built around him or, or right, that's but that media, I don't think that
0: sorry? That's what the media also you know, yeah, says, that's, that's what the that's, media
1: also says, they're building the team around Poppa or right. building the team around you know, Salah or whatever, right. but I think How coaches go about it is slightly different because I don't think any coach would want to be overly dependent on one player. So when uh, Solskjaer manages a team or tries to build a game plan or a strategy or a tactical approach, I don't think he says, you know what, Pogba is going to be my only focus and I'm going to build everything around it. And all the players should suit his style of play. Because that that would just be unwise, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that really happens. But if you if you take a team and if you say, okay, you know what, I think these are the four integral, you know, the vital cogs to the team, then yes, maybe you can build the team around those four players. Mm -hmm. And I think that those four players are generally the spine of the team, if you will. So it'll be the maybe the keeper. Of course the keeper is a very important part of it when you're in any kind of tactical approach but yeah the keeper the, let's say one of the center backs one of the midfielders across the line and one of the forwards and one creative man right. so if you look at it then that's the kind of uh, core group of players that you would like to build a team around right so in terms of game plans going for a toss or tactical approaches going for a toss if let's say a Pogba is injured or uh, Kevin De Bruyne is injured mm-hmm. it will affect him obviously because he's one of those four players or he's, he's one of the most relied upon and most important players in the team so it will right. definitely affect the team but I don't think a complete change of tactical approach is ever implemented because you know one of the players is out or injured or isn't performing so for example right. when Pogba was injured this season and everyone said oh what's going to happen now because you know your set your your important player the most important player in your team is now off for all for the entire season almost right. the entire season how are united going to adapt and if you look at it they have adapted really well
0: right
1: i mean yeah bruno fernandes came in in the winter and that helped out a lot but Rashford and he's said, brilliant so yeah he's been brilliant so far but you know and but see but see that's what i mean they found someone who could fill in uh, the void that was left by Papa's injury and they brought him in, but even if they hadn't brought him in, right? So they would have implemented a similar sort of game plan and mm-hmm. had would have tried to replace from the squad itself. Yeah. So for Man City, for example, with Man City, for example, when, you know, uh, hypothetically, if Kevin De Bruyne gets injured, he was injured for a small okay. part of the season. Okay. Yeah. So when he gets injured... Man City's performance, of course, drops a bit, but it's not like oh, you know what? They've completely fallen off the grid. Right. Right. So I think it's important. To, I mean, it's we. I think his fans need to understand it's not just one player that teams are built around. Right. Right. It's it's a group of players, and if let's say all those players are hypothetically, if all those players are to be injured, then yes, it would affect the team drastically. But changing game plans if one player is injured seems kind of i don't think any manager really does that
0: mm-hmm. right okay so this is where your know, game plans may change so i was going to bring this up we have a similar situation but during the match a player's uh, you know player you know that uh, you know they're done with probably three substitutions and a player gets injured so there's like 10 players on the pitch there's a red card 10 players on the pitch Right. The, uh, you know, there's a certain uh, tactic that's set and then uh, pro- probably they're defending a Champions League goal um, right. and uh, they go a goal down. Right. How do they, you know, adapt to that? How do they, you know, change their tactics? Hmm.
1: So so this is a really interesting question again because this is so, so much... Uh, I mean, it's so important to talk about because in-game changes in a game right. such as football, which is so dynamic and which has no timeouts apart from, let's say, the halftime, which is right. 15 to 20 minutes, right? It's really difficult to change a team's tempo or a team's tactical approach in, within, uh, while in-game. It's really difficult because it's so hard to change in such a fast and free-flowing game. Right. right. In basketball, you have these timeouts right? yeah. where you can completely change your approach, approach. I mean, well, at least try to completely change your approach and the players know what they're supposed to do after right. the timeout ends and in the next play. In football, that rarely happens. I mean, you could be doing really well in a game. Mm-hmm. You could be 1-0 up. And right. then at half-time, your manager says, okay, we're doing well. We just need to protect this lead. And when you get the chance, you know, try to make progressive uh- plays. Yeah. Or try to move into the final third, right. and then all of a sudden, within the next 15 minutes of uh, after resuming the game and in the second half, in the first 15 minutes, if you go to one down, then it's really hard to make your players switch gears and then say, "Oh man, we need to really change our complete approach." Right. So, it, and why this is an interesting question is because a few managers for a long time now have been advocating for timeouts. Mm-hmm. So, Antonio Conte, Fabio Capello, all of them at some point of time in their managerial career, career have said, you know what, this game needs a short timeout option in each half, or at least once in the game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important because for a coach, you need to be able to tell your players what you expect of them, what needs to change and right. you can't do it shouting on the touchline.
0: Right?
1: Right. Shouting on the touchline because it first of all, it's not it rarely works that the player with all that commotion, all that chaos is going to comprehend what you're telling him. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, even secondly, having the time to explain in detail mm-hmm. really is stuff. So yeah. a lot of managers, I think Mourinho did this a couple of times, and a few other managers have done, if you remember, he writes down these notes for right, the substitutes. Yeah. And then sends yeah. them on, and then that substitute gives the note to the player that he's supposed to give it to. And then you see, then the, the player reads it, and within a short while, you see a positional switch. You mm-hmm. see yeah. uh, you see the passing, uh, the kind of passing they want to change, right? Yes. You see changes. Yes. But a coach shouldn't have to do this, right? <laughs> shouldn't have to write this down on a piece of paper and then send it across with via the substitutes. So timeouts are something that is essential. And when you ask about the going down to 10 men, how hard is it? I think it's extremely hard. What mm-hmm. happens when you go down mm-hmm. to 10 men is, I mean, it changes the game so much. Because it's like taking out 10 or 12 kilometers from your running site, right? Right. <laughs> now the other team is going to be uh, running, let's say, 10 outfield players. So they're going to be running let's say, 100, 120 kilometers, and you're going to be falling 20 kilometers short.
0: Right. And
1: it's not yeah. just the physical exhaustion that this causes, but it's the it's the gaps that it causes in play. Yes. So you yes. immediately have to change your dynamics. And I think something like a timeout would really help this, because That's then correct. you can reorganize your team. And you can organize your formations even without a timeout. You can reorganize them, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, when Marino switched to uh, a 4 one against Barcelona when his team went down to 10 men at the Camp Nou back in the day. He switched immediately. And they, but Mourinho's tactical genius made his team realize what was necessary. They immediately comprehended what was required and what was needed and what he was telling them to do. And they Mm -hmm. immediately did that. But for teams that aren't particularly uh, tactically adaptable, to these in games, I think a tactical timeout could help the game in great proportions.
0: Right, right. No, uh, yeah. Uh, I clearly remember this match, where um, I'm not sure which year. So I I don't know if you, you saw the match. It was Madrid versus, uh, you know, Real Madrid versus Atlético Madrid, and right. uh, you know, Atlético Madrid were defending a lead, I guess, and then. Um, Sergio Ramos scores at the last um, minute of stoppage time, and yeah, it's, uh, uh, really uh, pushing, right, and then um, you know, Atletico just um, defending, I mean they usually defend anyway, but <laughs> so, uh, once uh, you know, Ramos scored that you know, they ran right, they scored probably like, I guess, three goals after that Bale, yeah. Ronaldo, and everyone so, yeah, I mean, once they're, you know, fixed on a specific tactic and then suddenly that stops working and um, then it, it gets really tough
1: yeah I mean that game was so it was so bizarre not bizarre but it was unbelievable in the sense that Atletico were playing so well and sticking to their game had stuck to their game plan for so long right and it kind of just breaks your heart to see it all go awry in an instant, right? Because when the corner, they were 1-0 up around 90 minutes, the corner for Real Madrid, the corner was awarded to Real Madrid and Ramos, as usual, comes up with a winner in the dying minutes and saves his side. And after that, I think, after that, Atletico just kind of lost uh, they, I mean, they were exhausted, obviously, because you once yeah. you go into extra time. But mm-hmm. Atletico is not the side you would expect to be exhausted before the opposition. So it's mm-hmm. not just exhaustion that played a role in the capitulation, right? right. It's also the mental uh, kind of the team breaking down mentally mm-hmm. because you've held on to something for so long, and then you go into extra time. And now you fight another thirty minutes for uh, for the Champions League trophy, which was so yeah. which you were so close to. Right. And it kind of just broke them down. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it kind of built Real Madrid's expectations and confidence even up. I mean, even higher. Right. Their confidence just grew. I mean, they were outstanding in extra time. No score. So, I mean, in terms of changing your game plan and adapting there, I'm sure Simeone tried everything to kind of, you know, uh, rile his gotcha. I mean his team, but like uh, you know, charges troops for the extra time. Mm-hmm. But you can't switch mentalities and you can't switch your mental conditioning at an instant, right? Yeah. It takes a while. And that while was enough for Real Madrid too.
0: Yeah. They're crushed, man. I mean, the, the Athletic Madrid players, you could see it in their faces. They're like, yeah. they're crushed. So it's like sad towards them. But yeah, I'm a Madrid fan, so.
1: Which Madrid? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so I guess you had a good day then.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Alright, so talk to us about the big matches. You know, uh, United-Chelsea, United-Liverpool. You know, they're following certain tactics and strategies and then they realize they got to go to Liverpool away. Yeah. And then you suddenly see there's a drastic change in the approach you know that mm-hmm. i even uh so alex used to do this as well yeah. i used to notice that uh, in the big matches the approach uh, you know changes a lot so why, yeah. why why does this happen
1: i i mean well it's because they're the big games right mm-hmm. but to answer in detail it would be a lot of the times it's the big games are make or break in the title races they haven't been for a couple of seasons right. but because the title winners have been so far apart from even the second place side right. but they are the make or break game, make or break games for these big teams so when a uh, Liverpool used to face Man United or where Man City used to face Man United back in the day it yeah. like Oh, six or seven years ago. It was because, and it was so close. I, I remember uh, the, the league finishing on, with United and City finishing on the same number of points and going to world difference. No, don't
0: So remind. these games yeah.
1: really would make... <laughs> yeah, I don't like to be reminded of it as well, but yeah. So, so see, but that's what I mean. These games are make or break because of such situations. Because Good. when it comes down to the wire these teams all these big teams are going to make possibly the same number of points are going to collect the same number of points against let's say uh, uh, the other 15 teams right. right but those four big teams are going to be the if you i mean in the 38 game season those eight games are going to be the ones where that are going to make the difference so if you get let's say 20 points from them then you're good to go, right? You're almost a contender. But if you just make seven or eight points from them, then you've lost out on a lot, right? So, so yeah, I think that's, I mean, that is really, really important. And why they change is because of that and how they change is also a funny thing because apart from uh, a man city, I think everyone changes their approach, Mm -hmm. right? Pep Guardiola has this brilliant capacity to keep innovating and keep to his philosophy and style, no matter who he's facing. And it's Mm -hmm. really admirable. But sometimes I think he goes a bit too far and managers do need to change and adapt. So Jose Mourinho is one end of the spectrum and uh, Pep would be the other end of the spectrum in terms of styles of play. So so Jose Mourinho immediately goes to a low block, counter-attacking approach in the big games. Even at United, even at his uh, first, even when he was at his, uh, even when he was at Chelsea in his first stint, mm-hmm. they went to this solid defensive block of a four, uh, four man defense. Then, uh, in his first stint, he played a diamond midfield, but they kind right. of split into a four, three, one, two, or that kind of defensive block. Right. And then at Real Madrid, with Real Madrid, actually, you only had to do it against Barcelona because they were. Uh, move past all other sides quite easily. But yeah. even at winter when he had to face the Juve and Milan, he went to a defensive block immediately. And I think it's really important because it works, right? Jose Mourinho has, over the years, proven that it works for him and it works for his team. I mean, the amount of success he's had playing this low-block defensive football in big games right. is incredible, right? It's incredible. Sure. And, he, I mean... If you look at um, Guardiola, he sticks to his gun. But I think all managers, even Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with his United right now, yeah. we tend to form a low block and hold off and then spring into action once we have the ball with quick attacks. So or at least they try to do that. Right. So I think if it wins you points and wins you game, I think every manager sh- should do it. And they do do it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's an essential part of coaching and uh, being a manager, your ability to adapt. Right? Because it's it's a results-based business like every other business. And Definitely. if you don't win those games, no one's gonna look at the game five years from now and see if they played a 4-3-3 possession-based game or if they played a five four one low block defensive game. Right. They're only gonna look at if they got three points or not.
0: Mm-hmm. And if
1: sure. it, if, they, if it got you three points, then you're a success.
0: Of course. Of course. So what in okay. Lighter question, in your opinion, would you win like um, Jose or play like Arsene?
1: Win like Jose, win like Jose no doubt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I've always been a great admirer of Jose Mourinho. I, yeah. I've also been an admirer of Arsene Van Gogh's brand of football. Yeah. But I think if you don't adapt, mm-hmm. you start to win less. And yeah. I think it happens with a few managers. And I think that's what makes... Uh, the Jose Mourinho's of the footballing world and the Pep Guardiola's and uh, Klopp's of the footballing world stand out,
0: right?
1: And and Sir Alex, the greatest example of all time, right? His uh, his ability to make his team switch uh, and adapt to the situation is was remarkable, and that's what got him great success. And Jose Mourinho the same, right? Mm-hmm. So I think I would rather win like Jose than. Have the team play like Arsene Wenger football because I think winning at the end is what is is what is recorded.
0: Sure, sure. Um, all right, so let's move on to the last part of our um, podcast. We talk about India. Can okay. the tactics of you know the big? EPL teams, so I, the big, I mean, for India, every um, EPL team is pretty big, can um, yeah. kind of tactics of their teams, so or even the teams from La Liga be adopted in India with the, you know, teams in India.
1: I mean, definitely it's, uh, I mean, I started, we started out this podcast by talking about different kinds of tactics. And where yep. I mentioned it really changes regionally because that's how it's been for a long time in history that, you know, yeah. certain country plays a certain way and the league teams play that way. But I think with India, it's, you can, I mean, you can adopt any style you want, right? If you mm-hmm. want it, if you want to, your teams to play in a certain way, you can adopt any style you want. Right. And India being kind of in an infant footballing nation, right? Mm-hmm. It's. Right it really has a scope to build a playing style and i think the isl has helped it a lot the i league has also helped ha- helped it earlier on but as right. we moved into a, a highly funded and highly visible league the isl right. has helped uh, a lot in terms of football visibility and, st- and they can approach they can try all kinds of different approaches and they are trying approaches so a tactical approach isn't Specified or isn't you know trademarked by any club or country, right? So right. anyone can, and they are trying what has been tried, tested, and currently works for them, everyone across okay. the world. So they are trying those typical 4 3 threes and you know uh, possession-based games. They are really trying it, and it's mm-hmm. working. So the ISL has a big part to play, but I think an even bigger part uh, is to be played by the national side and the right. youth setups in our country. Yes. and Bengaluru FC have this residential academy here, and the ISL has this, uh, Reliance Foundation has this huge setup and a lot of clubs are now starting with the academies, and I mm. think that is great, that is going to do wonders for Indian football and I think in 10 or 20 years, uh, I think Indian football is at least going to be uh, well recognized, I mean it's going to, India is going to be a well recognized country in Asian football at least maybe not in 10 years but in 20 years definitely and I think academies and recruiting uh, young players to proper professional academics, uh, uh, academy setups is a vital part of it so Tata Football Academy does a wonderful job of producing players who go on to play for India domestic clubs right. but we need more, India needs more academies like those and I think it's really important to uh, scout players when they're young and then Help them develop from a young age rather than, you know, uh, knowing of a player. I mean, knowing that this player is good, but he's already turned 18. 18 is a great age to kind of coach a player, but I think the European model has been so successful because they have tapped into the younger market, right? They have tapped in, they have seen potential and they know. And I mean, Ajax has these under seven sites, which is just ridiculous if you think about it, right? But yeah, that's yeah. what is needed to become a great footballing nation like the Netherlands or be, become a great footballing domestic team like Ajax. Of course. So I think creating this environment and creating this setup of uh, building from the ground to then having players who have trained in all kinds of different uh, academies and no various tactical setups and no various technical. Uh, are well versed in the technical abilities i think that is very important for india too and they're starting to do it so that's really great to see
0: that's that's wonderful to hear and uh hopefully you know like you said indian football can they're doing really well i mean they have been doing well for the last few years and hopefully they can you know reach uh, better heights you know
1: yeah,
0: Probably 10 fifteen years. We would
1: all love to see that. I mean, India on the global stage being recognized as a good footballing country is That's kind of what we all want to see.
0: Of course, of course. Sharva, thank you so much for you know spending your valuable time with us and talking to us about uh, football tactics and all things football, basically.
1: No, no worries. I mean, it was a great conversation, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Yeah.
0: Um. So. Why don't you tell our listeners about your new website, your new startup, what, have, yeah. what you've been working on?
1: Right. Uh, okay. So I've started a website called the hmm And so as I, I read up a lot in football and whenever I read up a lot of the sites I see, there are very few sites that are dedicated to... Uh, certain things in football a lot of the websites and a lot of the sites are related to football news football transfers results and right. news about what happened in today's game right? right and I thought there needs to be a place for people to go and read uh, really in-depth insightful uh, content so mm-hmm. I've started this website as I mentioned the routine.com which caters to that uh, which caters to people who ha- who want to read in-depth articles and insightful articles and interesting content about football. So we do, we have content ranging from tactical analysis, uh, right. like stuff we discussed, but in greater depth about games, about different styles of play, about different positional play and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We do tactical analysis, and we have tech, uh, we have footballing history. So we have a section dedicated to you know the great moments from footballing history which people seem to have forgotten about or people don't read up on often so yeah. something interesting stories from the past mm-hmm. we also have a transfer section which would be discussing about uh you know if this player will fit in but it's more than just this player is going to this so it's more kind of an editorial article kind of website for football that right. caters to an audience which wants to consume you know interesting meaningful content and we also have a podcast by the same name the set piece routine podcast which you can find on you know apple podcast google podcast spotify and anchor and amongst many other platforms and so we i basically want this to become a football content company mm-hmm. so hopefully it will work out and i do hope that your audiences visit the website and give help
0: yeah. you Oh, sure. Uh, you're doing a wonderful job and uh, I did check out a few of your articles. I still haven't uh, listened to your podcast, so I will be doing that today along with my listeners. So listeners, please um, support uh, Sharvar. Let's um, all have a look at his uh, website and listen to his podcast. And especially if you're a football fan, football enthusiast, I'm sure there's, you know, incredible content from him. And uh Sharva, I'll have all the links to your website and your podcast on the show notes so people you can directly uh reach his um website there. And um great. So Sharva, thank you again.
1: Thanks and a lot, Sharva. Thanks for having We to
0: have you again Honestly. with us for some other topics.
1: Yeah, definitely would love to be a part of the podcast again.
0: Cheers. Take care. Thanks bro. a
1: lot. Take care.